Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Tom DeFreston, on his new book, Wreck. Tom DeFreston is a visual artist based in Oxford. Among various fellowships and residencies, he has held a Levenhulme residency at Cambridge University, a Levy Plum residency at Christ College, and the inaugural Creative Fellowship at Birmingham University. His work is regularly exhibited and is represented in numerous public and private collections. With his wife, the writer Kieran Millwood Hargrave, he is the co-creator of Orpheus and Eurydice and Julia and the Shark, which was winner of the Waterstones Children's Gift of the Year. And today we're going to be talking about Tom's debut non-fiction book, which is Wreck, Giro's Raft and the Art of Being Lost at Sea. Tom, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. Really excited. So the book in the main looks at the French artist Theodore Gerald and his um, his raft of the Medusa in the main, um, but also other work, and also looks at your your own work through that prism as well. So we'll talk about Jericho first and then and then come on to yourself a bit later on. So tell us something about who he was, his background. He kind of gets normally classified as a romantic, French romantic painter. But interestingly, he sits right on the cusp of um, the kind of end of the neoclassical tradition, the beginning of romanticism. And the Raft of the Medusa that the book kind of centres on, really, and my obsession with it, is an interesting painting because it's a history painting. And history painting at the time tended to take big subjects from history, literature, mythology or the Bible and then look to translate them into large narrative paintings. And what was unusual about what Jericho took as his subject matter, not completely unique for its time, but was unusual, was that he took a contemporary event. Um, So the Raft of the Medusa is based on a real-life naval tragedy that happened in um, 1816, and the uh, ship Medusa was travelling from France to Senegal um, because... It was basically part of a collection of people who were going to be taking back power from British to French hands. And the Medusa ran aground and 150 people were put on board a hastily constructed raft that was made literally from the the remnants of the broken ship um, and were meant to be dragged to safety, but were cast adrift. Um, And over the course of 13 days, there was mutiny, there was murder, there was cannibalism. 
um, there was suicide and only 14 people survived. And a couple of them ended up writing a pretty explosive political text about their ordeal. And this, along with the newspaper reports, was amongst the ways Jericho heard about the story. And he actually ended up then befriending a couple of the survivors and set about thinking about how might he translate their experiences into a painting. So the painting that he makes is not remotely illustrative of a single moment. It kind of takes the story and elevates it to the genre of history painting. Um, So I often describe it as like a secular Last Judgment painting. It was a pretty explosive thing to paint. Um, It was like, you know, the scandal of the day. And to suddenly situate that within this tradition that was normally saved for um, historical, biblical or mythological scenes was pretty radical. We'll come back to the painting again in a minute. But talking about scandalous, tell us something about his private life, which was also pretty scandalous. It was, yeah, he kind of, so he actually ended up partly run off to Rome, as many artists of the day did to study the masters, in particular Michelangelo. But also he'd got himself involved in a, an affair with his um, aunt, so actually his uncle's wife, um, who their relationship was a complex one. It kind of started with she was almost like a kind of surrogate mother. And then she was one of the people that helped him find excuses and ways into his art training. So she was very much a kind of a, a supporter of his. And then uh, their relationship kind of slowly evolved and became amorous and then sexual. And in part, he ran away to escape this. The fear of it becoming public distance seemed the only way that they could, could end it. Um, but she did eventually, you know, they rekindled this on his return and she did eventually end up becoming pregnant with his child. So there was this, you know, obviously family scandal at the, at the centre of his life. Um, right around the time that he was working on or set about working on the raft of the Medusa. And you've given us some idea of of where his work sits in in the sort of history of French painting, but tell us something else about what's going on in France at the time that he is working historically. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair to say that there's this period in French history from when Jericho was born through to so he died um, in his early thirties, so through to his death you can pretty much argue as the most, the period of most violent um, and extreme change pretty much in European history. So, you know, he was born into a France that was still under the ancient regime. And then very soon after that, you had um, the bloody overthrow of the revolution. Um, And then a republic was formed. And then you have um, Napoleon come into power. So then you have a kind of system that in some ways drops back obviously to a authoritarian leader you have napoleon then expanding france's colonial reach um, and actually overreaching at points and then you end up with this kind of incredible back and forth of napoleon in exile the monarchy coming back in napoleon back in for a short period and then the bourbon restoration so the monarchy back in again and around the time that jericho was painting the raft of the medusa was this period of the Bourbon monarchy having been restored. So it's a France in unbelievable flux, like political flux, um, that, you know, the very structure of the country is being uprooted, you know, every few years. And, you know, his art reflects this because it's also a period of huge stylistic change in European art and particularly French art. And in some ways, the Raft of the Magister itself is a kind of a metaphor for the corruption of France at the time, the kind of rot that sat at the centre of the country. 
And I wanted to talk about other work that he did as well, because as you said, you know, clearly the time that he's living through is, is very influential on his work. And the Raft of the Medusa, as controversial as the painting was politically, it's pretty mild compared to some of the stuff he was doing that we don't see so often. So tell us about some of the other work that he did and the subjects he chose to draw and paint. Yeah, he was someone who was drawn to, I suppose, the darker corners of society. Um, So during his time in Rome, uh, he painted various scenes of public hangings and executions. He made prints and lithographs and small studies of some unbelievably um, bloody uh, situations and stories that were um, in the French press. And probably most famously, he made these series of paintings that are often seen as studies for the Raft of the Medusa, but actually very much standalone works. And they're of um, severed heads and limbs that he'd gathered from local morgues and hospitals. And they're they're kind of remarkable paintings because people are, on the one hand, you know, have this vision, which is very much was the case, of the studio full of rats, full of flesh that was slowly degrading. And, you know, this fascination he had of almost like a Dr. Frankenstein type character of, of watching it rot and trying to study the changes. But if you actually pay attention to the paintings themselves, they're kind of astonishing and beautiful and tender, strangely erotic uh, still lives. They're kind of depictions of the transience of flesh, of mortality, of desire, of desire mixed with violence, um, of the very nature of what it is to be mortal and to live in a body. But the kind of context in which they're made makes people kind of immediately just presume they're macabre and viscerally unpleasant. But they're actually kind of pretty beautiful, um, amazing paintings, unlike, kind of unlike anything that's ever been made in art history before. So I wanted to talk about how the painting of the Raft of the Medusa went for him. And, and let's talk about the, the survivor. So you mentioned that there was uh, a couple of survivors wrote, uh, wrote a, like a, a political tract about what had happened and, and, you know, the aftermath and how it had happened. And this one guy, Coria, was actually also ends up being like one of the models in the, for the painting. Tell us about the conversations that the two had along the way. So it's interesting, actually, one of the things I wanted to do in the book is we're aware of how close their relationship was, you know, so we're aware of the fact that he posed for Jericho, we're aware of the fact that they had this um, very close friendship, but kind of, I suppose, political alliance in their their views and their role of what art could do in the messages they wanted to get out there. Um, We're also aware that they were mixing in similar circles. And so we know that... It was a collective effort, this kind of development of the work of Jericho gathering these stories, gathering these first-hand accounts as he went about making the painting. But one of the things I was interested in writing the book was to kind of imagine into the, into the spaces that history can't enter, um, into the spaces where the conversations that took place are that we can never know. I kind of found it an interesting idea to imagine those and to almost approach that history as an historical fiction writer might, as opposed to an historian, which was a very purposeful decision because I almost wanted to approach history in the writing in the same way that Jericho approached in his painting, which is kind of to give yourself the freedom to imagine into the gaps and the gaps become as interesting as, you know, the facts and the facts obviously act as a kind of an architecture around which we have to build everything. Um, But I was interested as much in what we didn't know as what we do. 
And you've mentioned that it was it was scandalous when it was exhibited, but you talk about the actual first moment of when it's exhibited at, at the Louvre. Just tell us tell us about what happened. Well, a number of things are astonishing about when it was um, so it was shown in the salon, and that was you know the artist's opportunity at the time, particularly if you were making paintings of the scale of this. It's a, you know it's a painting that's over seven meters wide. It's huge. So Jerrica was kind of presuming it was going to make a big mark. And it was split very much down political grounds, the reactions to it. And there were some pretty, there were people who found it kind of dull and dirty and unpleasant and thought that it was a genre painting because it took an everyday subject. But the most interesting thing is that, as I said before, I kind of see this as a secular last judgment painting. So it's a painting that's composed across two diagonals. And from the left, from bottom right to top left, you have this kind of diagonal of despair of this corpse that leads the eye through to this billowing mast, to this sense of the raft about to be swallowed up by the waves. And then from bottom left to top right, you have this movement from a scene of mourning through to this animation of figures right up to this crux of this figure of hope. And he has a figure who has his back to us and is waving a flag to a smudged, almost ghost ship on the horizon. So he's He's the potential saviour. He's the kind of the Christ-like figure. And this figure is black. And almost none of the literature at the time was basically a kind of a blindness. They, they could not see the race of the figure. It was as if this was such a startling thing to be doing that they weren't even aware of the politics that were at play here. And so it wasn't that they were seeing that and then finding it problematic. They just weren't even seeing it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tom DeFreston, and we're talking about his book Wreck. And Tom, 
just one more question about the RAF then, and then we'll, we'll move on to, to look at how it is, how it has influenced your work. And I wanted to talk about, I guess, when you first saw it, what your reaction was to it and why you became obsessed with it. Yeah, I first saw it um, while I was doing, studying a fine art degree up in Leeds, at Leeds Metropolitan University. And um, if I'm being honest, I was a bit lost. I was making really pretentious and, to be honest, pretty poor abstract paintings. Didn't quite know what I was going to do with myself. And we had this field trip to Paris and I went round the Louvre and felt discombobulated, felt alienated by a lot of the work. Couldn't quite find a way into it. It all felt not relevant or resonant to me or what I was doing. And then I came across the Ross from Medusa just completely by chance. I mean, it's huge. You can't really avoid it, but it's in a room of huge paintings. And there was something, without me knowing anything about it, um, despite it being a very famous painting, I, I kind of was very naive to it at the time. There was like this magnetic charge that pulled me into it, pulled me into it spatially, but pulled me into it kind of psychologically as well. It's like a very overwhelming experience. Pretty much instantaneously in that moment, I had this realisation that I wanted to return to painting images, that I wanted to return to thinking about narrative in painting, um, and that I wanted to immerse myself in the history of painting to kind of build the foundations um, that had come before me that I felt very detached from. Um, So single-handedly seeing that painting was what led to me to go to Cambridge to study history of art, but also completely reshaped what I wanted to do in the studio. It, it, you know, it set me off on this course to just want to paint images, to want to tell stories, to want to make paintings that dealt with deep psychological complexity. So the book also tells the story of a art project that you embark on called I Saw This, which people can see some paintings of on your website. Um, this is with a filmmaker, but also with a Syrian refugee, a professor, um, Ali Suleiman. And I'll get you to introduce us to Ali and how you met. I won't say any more about him. Tell us who Ali is. So Ali is a academic um, and a writer and a translator from uh, Syria, uh, from Damascus, actually, and Aleppo. So originally from Aleppo, but has spent a lot more of his life in Damascus. And Ali lost his sight to a bomb blast in 1997, um, when he was due to be going back home on a coach from Damascus to Aleppo and say farewell to his family because he was going to be going to Paris to do his PhD, which was going to be in uh, theatre studies or um, dramatic literature. And then obviously had this incident with the bomb going off, this terrorist attack where he nearly lost his life, but he did lose his sight. He ended up still completing a PhD, he ended up in Oxford, and then eventually went back to Damascus where he became a professor of dramatic arts and then ended up, therefore, having a family and then living through war blind and obviously the current conflict. And then in 2016, moved back to Oxford, um, had a, got a position at St. John's, um, a fellowship there. And that's when we met. And um, we actually initially met with this view to taking on a project that took Shakespeare's King Lear and thinking about ways to think about how that text rhymes with what was going on in Syria. but. That project kind of evolved and developed, but never really quite took off, but then became the catalyst for what was the I Saw This project, because I had this remarkable experience where Ali asked to come and view my paintings in my studio. 
I didn't quite know what that meant because um, I thought, how can a blind man see my work? And then across a series of afternoons through touch and description, I showed Ali through a number of canvases and one or two of them in particular really spoke to him and by sheer coincidence seemed to kind of resonate and echo with things that he'd been through. And whilst we were going through these conversations, I also became aware of how unbelievably rich his internal landscape was of memory, how rich of metaphor and um, how visual it was. We basically set about this project, kind of stumbled upon it really, of wondering what might it mean to try and translate the unseen world of his inner life, of his memories, into a series of paintings. So in essence, what might it mean to make the unseen seen? So tell us some more about the process you went through, you both go through, to come to the what ends up being the finished work, which there are, you know, various disasters along the way as well, which, you know, obviously feed into what finally gets exhibited. But you yourself, you this is not just, you know, you painting on the canvas. You you're very physically involved in the work as well. I think interestingly, it's only in hindsight that I've kind of realized it's a it became a kind of accidental quest narrative or a process of exploration together. And it's because I think I thought to start with, we'd set off on a mission, I'd kind of envisage some methods, some ways, some approaches to making images, and I'd make them, and it would be a success and we'd be done. But as you mentioned, there were these various kind of disasters and obstacles along the way, and full starts and failures. And what that meant is increasingly blurring the lines between artists and subject, increasingly realising that we were kind of in an exploration together, there wasn't some neat divide between us. And also realising that I had to come up with methodologies and processes that were true to Ali's experiences. So that meant bringing performance in. That meant physically inhabiting moments. Um, That meant that the process of making the work was kind of as important as the final work itself, because that process became a kind of a journeying together. And this meant things like, you know, there were scenes I described in the book of kind of covering myself in chicken wire and clay and concrete or actively burning paintings as a kind of a way to let go of certain histories, but then starting to use fire as um, a kind of a method to make paintings, to play with fragments, to play with destruction as a process of creation. So it became this increasingly complex web of ways into Ali's stories and experiences and far more elaborate than I could ever have imagined really like we really did kind of develop our own our own collective language. You also talk in the book about how and I guess I don't know to what extent also this is you know really a a thing you could look back on in in retrospect having sat down to actually you know write this this story of this project but you begin the book sitting by the by your father's hospital bed as he dies and the book becomes a sort of exploration of a very troubled relationship you had with your father. Tell us something, if you can, about that relationship. Yeah, of course. I, I'm interested in thinking about grief in general. And I think grief when, you know, losing a father is always going to be a, a complex and tricky thing anyway. But because my relationship with him was one of, was a troubled one, um, it meant grief was such a labyrinth. Like it was so hard to work out how I felt Uh, for a lot of it. I felt completely numb. Um, I write in the book about at points being able to get to a darkness, which I can only map its borders, but not get to the center of it. And one of the things I was interested in was using the book 
or using language as a way to, I suppose, kind of plot like the cartography of grief, like grief when there are gaps and absences and being true to those absences, as opposed to trying to, you know, that's often the nature of trauma, that there are erasures, that are things we can't get at. And it felt interesting to write around those and to get as close as I could to them, but then to find the points where language isn't enough, where language can only can only stretch around it. Not as a process of catharsis as such, but more as a process of self-awareness and understanding. Your father seems a, a very um, difficult character, shall we say. Tell us something yeah. about who he was. Uh, he was, oh God. He was, yeah, he was difficult. He was troubled. He he had an unbelievably traumatic upbringing in the way he was brought up by his parents. Um, so it meant that he he was a true kind of outsider to the world. He you know he saw himself as a witch, as an artist, as a gardener, as someone who could make potions, as a chef, as a painter. He was, I suppose, a kind of a shape shifter in that sense. Someone I can never quite make sense of or pin down. Um, he was someone who, you know, it's a very strange thing for someone who is the nature of a parent who you care for and love and you give over your trust for that trust to be challenged or pushed puts you in a very unsettled ground. And so to have a father where that relationship is subverted or, or the privileges of it are abused is obviously hugely unsettling. And I'm kind of interested in what happens with cross-generational trauma, because I kind of see the trauma that was inflicted on him. Are the ways in which we can use language or therapy or deep thinking, is there a way that we can kind of heal or break those that lineage so that it doesn't have to keep causing damage beyond. And to finish off then, to what extent do you think, you know, both working on the art projects? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. But then sitting down to write this book and going through that process as well, to what extent have you been able to get any resolution? I think interestingly, it's like, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, how the book, how the project, you know, we like to think of these nice, neat closures, like the book's done, so it's finished. Whereas actually... I'm intrigued, for instance, how even things like this, even these conversations at the work, you continue exploration. So of every kind, so whether that's stuff to do with my dad or stuff to do with the work, um, that the book is just kind of one end point. But I don't think it's about ever being able to close doors. I think it's about going deep, as deep as you can into the psyche, into the past, 
and as broad as you can. But the further you go, the more mysteries kind of remain there. So it's less that there's been kind of resolution or clarity, but there is probably peace um, and more understanding. So I've been talking to Tom DeFreston. We've been talking about his book, Wreck, Jericho's Raft and the Art of Being Lost at Sea, which is out in the UK from Granter. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, God, no, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.